Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this time I'm joined by actor, director, producer, writer, editor. That's a lot of different hats you wear, sir. But he's best known (laughs) for being Chip Douglas of my three sons, but he's done many other things. A great pleasure for me to welcome to the show, Stanley Livingston. How are you doing today, sir? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's all mine. You know, I grew up watching, as most people did, My Three Sons and so many other things that you have done growing up. I, your voice work and um, the Roman holidays, um, how the West was won, and other TV movies that you've done. I mean, you're, you're like all over the place with different things that you've been a part of. It's been a long career. <laughs> it's been a... Uh... Probably about 65, 66 years of uh, doing it. I started in 19, uh, about 1956. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing it a while and uh, still enjoy doing it. And, you know, lucky enough to have a show that seemed to survive uh, survive time itself. It's still on every morning on TV. It's never gone off the air. So that show's literally been on TV, I guess, about 62 years now, which is uh, pretty amazing. It, the show's almost re- that, is at the part where it can reach um, um, Social Security. It's getting up there. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, it almost is. Uh, although the people that own the show do very well with it, so they probably don't even need Social Security. But, uh, yeah, I'm proud to say I was on it. Uh, I had no idea it was going to last that long and be such an enduring show. It's had many iterations from primetime TV to general syndication on the network to uh, – the launch of cable TV with Nick at Night, and then 10 years later, 95 around, uh, they launched TV Land, so it ran another 10 years there. And it's been on probably about four or five different networks since then, cable networks, that is. And literally uh, went out in the air in 1916. It's never gone off. You know, it's always played somewhere. As well, it should. And before we get way into your career and how you got started and everything, I grew up in the Baltimore, Maryland area and and still live in Maryland. And you have family roots in Baltimore, if I'm correct. Yeah, I probably still have family, probably uh, cousins and distant cousins who live there. But uh, yeah, my dad was born and raised in in Baltimore. Not sure which area, but I I did go to one or two of the houses that he was raised in. But I don't know what geographically what areas, what those were called. But uh yeah, I've got a cousin uh, that lives there, and you know, I've stayed at her place. I was kind of uh, base camp, and then go out from there and go explore the city. And yeah, I think it was like we were talking before you hit the hit the play or the record button. We were talking about my grandfather owned burlesque theaters in Baltimore during the war years, uh, World War II. That is not the Vietnam War, and uh, that was the uh, family business, and. Uh, yeah, my dad ended up working there. He was in New York going to college at the time to become a uh, psychologist. And he was called back to help with, run the business. And uh, so he returned. And had he not returned, he wouldn't have met my mom. And if he hadn't met my mom, this conversation wouldn't be taking place. <laughs> that is true. And for those for those that are wondering that live in the area, um, Clover Theater, which was also known as the Scratch House, was the theater your yes. grandfather owned. And um, he owned two theaters. Actually, he owned the Globe and the Clover. 
Oh, so, so he owned two. Yeah, he, he owned a pair of theaters. One wasn't enough, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounded like a lot of problems. I mean, it's kind of a funny story because he uh, came into them. His brother gave him the businesses. His brother was a pretty well-to-do uh, pawnbroker. In fact, I think their pawn shop is still downtown, or at least it was 30 years ago, with the name Livingston on the side. And I guess to settle a debt, he took possession of these super theaters. And my grandfather was kind of, uh, he was a wannabe, you know, theater guy and artist and writer and, and family man. He had nine kids to feed. Uh, but he was a terrible businessman. So he gave my my grandfather these two businesses, which were up and running. Of course, he didn't tell my grandmother where the money was coming from and that they owned Berlitz. <laughs> took a couple of years where she found out about it. And around that time, he got sick. And uh, she had to step in and fill his shoes and went down there, much to her chagrin, and started you know, running the, the theaters and did that for, gosh, I guess about five, six years, seven years, and, uh, you know, the war was over, and Burlesque by then was waning. It also was a movie theater, I think, during the daytime they ran movies, and at night it would become the Burlesque Theater. But, uh, yeah, she she ran and operated it and uh, with an iron fist, and, or should I say, a, a velvet glove would probably be a better way <laughs> to describe it. She, she was really nice to the women that worked there, and, you know, it wasn't, kind of as, as tawdry as it sounded and most of these women were came there during the depression and were looking to make money somewhere and i guess this was an alternative to being a waitress or a hat check girl and you can make really good money and most of them were sending it home to their families back in west virginia and pennsylvania she sort of became the den mother for all these strip chicks <laughs> although they <laughs> In those days, they didn't strip quite as much as, you know, in the latter years. In fact, I, the one I went into, uh, I forgot which one it was, but it, it actually had the 2 o'clock club below it. It was a nightclub there, the Blaze Star owned. And um, when I went there, it was called Club Miami. It was one of those places you go and had a, like a ramp down the center with a pole, and they did pole dancing. So it was still operating, and... But in today's fashion, or today's fashion, thirty years ago, I don't, I don't know what it is now. For all I know, it could be a toy store. <laughs> I know its location in the city. I know it can't. It wouldn't be that kind of. Well, it wouldn't be a children's toy store. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, yes, maybe an adult toy store. <laughs> we have better way to put it. Yeah, for for those that are in the Baltimore area, it's it's located on the block, and and for those in the area, know the reputation. Of the block, at least so now it is. It was is, different back then. Is, is the block still the block, or is it kind of settled down? It it's still there. I don't think the block is as big as it used to be. My uncle um, used to work as a police officer in Baltimore City, and his his thing was the block. So I have I had many stories of his time working the block and doing the foot patrols and that kind of stuff. And uh, they probably knew my grandfather, probably arrested him once or twice. <laughs> They'd always have a vice squad a raid every once in a while. And that was just part of the job description was to be arrested for about five minutes. And then your attorney would you know, get you back out. But the police officer would look good like he was doing his job. So uh, there was just an understanding, <laughs> they say. Yeah, every so often you work. have to go, every so often you have to do something at your place or it looks very suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, and everybody knew ahead of time. You know, there was a warning sent out, look, 
going to have to arrest you tonight, so have your lawyer on standby, you know, to get you out. And I got to do my job. And, you know, this guy who's sending me down there is running for re-election, so he needs to do something, too. It'll look like he's tough on crime or tough on strippers. I don't know, whatever the case may be. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. Yeah, I'm actually working not on a book. My uncle actually wrote a book about his experiences there. He was another one, like my dad, that was forced to come home from New York where he became a lawyer and help out with the family business. But he, he didn't stay long either, just long enough to meet a, a cute chick and get married and move back to New York and left my dad there running the place. But eventually he wrote a book called Papa's Burlesque House that kind of recounts his experience of going there even when he wasn't of age. He's probably about 15, 16. So I'm sure to see women scantily clad was jaw-dropping in those <laughs> days. And it's like, sure, Grandpa and Dad, I'll work here, you know. So, uh, yeah, same for my dad. You know, it was a different kind of business. But, you know, um, I, I guess I could have done something else, but that's what they did. That's true. And when your dad was growing up in Baltimore, I understood he used to read poetry, but he used to read poetry yeah. at a very unique spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He'd go to the graveyard. I think where uh, Edgar Allan Poe was buried, read it, you know, there. My dad was at, you know, that's the ironic part of it when you think about the business that the family was in and especially my dad. My dad was, I mean, an intellect. He was like a genius. He graduated, I think, high school when he was like 12 or something and graduated college when he was about 16. So, and you know, he spoke four foreign languages. His idea of a fun afternoon was to sit there and work calculus problems. So he was kind of like a brain, which is, if you could only imagine him meeting my mom, who happened to be a stripper at this place, a dancer, she called it. And the two of them getting together was, I mean, it, it, it was a definite odd couple, you know. She was beautiful looking and, you know, just incredible, wild personality. My dad's like the shy kind of, uh, you know, dude with, you know, that was intellectual and always reading and knew literature really well and wore glasses. He, he kind of eventually looked like Woody Allen in a way. So it was just the strangest couple, but uh, it worked somehow and, you know, and what happened was after the war years, when business started to slow down, uh, they decided to sell the business. And my mom was really itching to get out of town. You know, she she did what she had to do, but I don't think she was exactly proud of it. And, you know, and just said, hey, why don't we go to California? And just, nobody will know we own this business. Nobody will know, you know, what she was, which was a, a dancer. And, uh, you know. I didn't know much about it when I was a kid. You know, I just knew my mom had been a dancer. And in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, uh, probably like at uh, Radio City Music Hall, you know, something like those kind of dancers. I didn't realize it was in a, a strip place, and you know, but she was an entertainer of sorts, and she would have been pleasant on the eyes to look at, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> it, it sounds like your parents – is. Meeting is what you'd see in the movies all the time, you know, where you get the guy that's more of like the, the nerdy type, the brainiac, and he gets the good looking girl and people are like, that's not, that, that's not realistic, but it is realistic because it happened with your parents. It, yeah, it did. Uh, you know, it's not 
quite exactly that because when my dad was young, around the time he met her, he looked like Jude Law. Ooh. He was a knockout for a guy, so he had women hanging all over him. He could get anybody he wanted. You know, I'm thinking later when he got into like his 30s and he moved out of here and, you know, he aged a little bit. And, you know, back then, unfortunately, the style of glasses made, immediately added 10 years on the however <laughs> you're old. They're just poorly designed and your your clothing in those days didn't really help much either. They weren't very stylish. Uh, you, you could get two or three legs down one leg hole, you know, in a pair of pants. So, you know, when I look at my dad's wardrobe back then, I'm going, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, amazing you got anybody. But, yeah, and then he kind of went through a period when he got older before he started wearing the glasses. He kind of morphed from looking like Jude Law into, like, um, I think who he looked like, um, William Holden. Had kind of a William Holden look for about five, ten years, and and then he kind of morphed into morphed into like Woody Allen. Murph, maybe Murph is a better <laughs> word. <laughs> but yeah, he was a pretty good looking guy. You know, it just depends whether his hair was disheveled or combed, and you know whether he had his glasses on or not. But uh, yeah, he, he kind of you know even in, in later years dressed appropriately and with a more stylish pair of glasses. Kind of was a good looking guy. Now we know where you got your um, good genes from, both sides of the family, you know, so to speak, your mom and your dad. So it worked out well for you. Yeah. You know, however, I, I look at that and I go, gee, you know, I don't really look as much like my dad. I mean, I see, see a little bit of similarity there. And I see probably a little more with my mom, but who I really look like is my dad's younger brother, you know, who actually dated my mom before, uh, you know, my dad did. So I always thought that was kind of strange, especially when I was in my thirties and forties, I, I looked a lot like my, my dad's youngest brother. Uh, now I don't know. Well, he died at, wow. I guess he was 54, 53 and died early. Everybody smoked then. So everybody got cancer, including my mom. So, uh, unfortunately it took her out. My dad smoked, but he quit when he was 50. Didn't get cancer, but he ended up, uh, with emphysema pretty bad. So, Yep, that was the era of Paul Mall and Camel. <laughs> yes, it was. And um, so your mom and dad moved out to California because that's the place you ought to be because we all know that from the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, his older brother moved out prior to that. and He wasn't really involved in the uh, family business. and He was the first one to make the leap to California. So my, my dad had a place to go and initially worked for him. And then he kind of branched out and started his own business. And then the brother, the uh, uncle that I looked like about two years later, he came out with his wife. So, uh, yeah, there was this whole progression of living since that came to California. Uh, the older brother came out first, didn't last long. He was here about maybe four or five years and went back. And then there was a younger sister uh, that came out and she was here maybe four or five years, and moved back to uh the Washington area, which is in Silver Springs. So taking place, obviously you were born and how did you get your start? You know, how, how did everything get started with you and the business? Was it like something that your parents pushed or is this by happenstance? Uh, yeah, it was kind of the confluence of my interest in it and uh, the proximity of being in, in Hollywood, Los Angeles, but Hollywood specifically. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was just, uh, I guess I had some of my grandfather in me. It's like I wanted to get up and 
sing and dance and you know and tv came along and i was really curious about that little box and how people were in it and we we lived at a a rented house in hollywood and i remember in the backyard there was a a tv console an early one that had a pretty small screen but the screen was gone so it was just this hole but you can get you could get in back of the tv and pretend you were the one on tv by looking out i remember i play there and would make up you know dialogue and have a puppet or you know i was just entertaining myself basically but you know i had the propensity to do that and uh started in nursery school and they put on shows in fact uh, the uh nursery that i went to was really uh i guess it would have been an elementary school i think that's what they called it then in hollywood at gardner street elementary school which there was an auditorium there and i remember i was always volunteering to be in whatever shows or to sing and uh so yeah you know, it was jazz that was in a, some kind of show where i got to put on a i think it was a policeman costume and at the last minute they changed swapped me out with some other kid and I had to be the milkman, so I didn't have the gun. I didn't get to pull the handle, changing the red light or green light to red light. Instead, I had a wire basket of uh, square milk bottles. I was my first uh, disappointment in show business. <laughs> I was recast. Um, and from there, I went to Vine Street Elementary School, and the same thing. They had an auditorium there, and uh, anytime something came up, they'd ask for volunteers. I volunteered and would be in all the shows. So. You know, I wasn't nervous about doing it. I wanted to do it, and I guess my parents saw that in me. And then that, coupled with my mom, when we lived uh, at, on Formosa, which is when I went to Gardner Street School, wanted me to learn how to swim. And I went to a swim school in Hollywood. And the lady that owned the uh, swimming pool was a real entrepreneur. She had lots and lots of kids coming there learning how to swim. And uh, she was very entrepreneurial. She'd call up the newspapers and magazines, come down and do photo shoots with us. And she'd trained us to drive bicycles and these little toy cars underwater. She had a porthole cut uh, in the side of her pool. So you could go down a set of steps, and they had about a six-foot diameter glass uh, window, and you could see underwater and take pictures that were very vivid. Anyway, it ended up in a lot of magazines, McCall's, Vogue, you know, there were period magazines, Life. And uh, there was a show on TV then, too, called You Asked For It. And, uh, of course, she asked for it. <laughs> they came down and filmed a segment on us, and we called ourselves, or they called us, Water Babies. So we would do all these things. And then there were, you know, children that were learning how to swim that were, you know, literally a year old that could swim, you know, just babies can and, uh, you know, photographs of us, my little brother, Barry, you know, learning how to swim. And I'd be underwater riding a car or bicycle. And uh, it got a lot of notoriety. And because of that, a lot of Hollywood people started bringing their kids there to learn how to swim. It was right on Hollywood Boulevard by Western. And uh, producers, you know, uh, directors, agents. Well, there was an agent there that took an interest in me. And you could see I was pretty vivacious and verbal and um, a handful, and she thought I had the right qualities to become a child actor, and she kept after my mom. My mom, yeah, I'm sure she was interested in that, but was a little bit dubious about the lady at first, but she had some, you know, real clients, so my mom knew who they were, and they sort of became friends, and 
Next thing you know, I started getting sent out on interviews, uh, mainly the parts where I didn't have any dialogue. I was an extra, uh, but I did, you know, maybe four or five shows as an extra. And one of the shows I did was called Lousy and Harriet. And that was a huge show in, you know, from early 50s on about 52, 53. It might have been the top, you know, family show on TV. And I was cast as an extra. And uh, somewhere in the process of shooting, uh, Ozzie Nelson came up to me and said, hey, could you say this line? And he told me what to say. And he said, see that little mark on the floor there, that little X? When you get right there, look at me and say that line. So I did it. And, and then we shot it again. And then he moved the camera closer. And I got my close-up saying the line. And uh, I guess he liked what I did. He went up to my mom afterwards and said, hey, you know, I, I really want like him. And I want to have him come back. Please leave your name with my secretary in the front office before you leave. You know, uh, anybody knows anything about show business or heard those things for him, then you never hear from anybody ever again. But a couple of weeks later, they, they called and I did another show and then another and over a period of about, I guess, from 1957 to 1960, I did a probably a couple, maybe, maybe about a dozen, 15 shows, something like that. And so that kind of got me going. And getting that line also allowed me to join Screen Actors Guild as an actor. I had a line of dialogue that was now on film. And I started doing movies. Uh, did a film called The Bonnie Parker Story, which was an early version of Bonnie and Clyde with Dorothy Provine. Uh, I did Rally Around the Flag Boys with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. What was that um, one like with, with, with Paul Newman and um, Joanne Woodward? Yeah, no, it was fun. You know, I didn't, I wasn't starstruck because I was just a kid. So that's one of the benefits. You know, you don't know who anybody is, just another guy, you know, talking to you <laughs> on screen. But I, that movie had a kind of a special story attached to it. When I went out to interview for it, uh, you know, I did. And then they let the other kids go. And it was just me, my mom. And of course, my mom bought, brought my little brother because we didn't have a babysitter. And he's there. And so the casting person said, well, who is this kid? My mom said, oh, that's Stanley's brother, Barry. And they said, oh, well, we're looking for a younger brother. Could, could he do it? And my mom <laughs> went, yeah, sure. You know, So Barry got hired along with me. But what happened was the day we shot uh, one of the scenes, or this first scene, uh, the director was Leo McCary. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but Leo McCary was a huge, huge director in Hollywood. He's actually the guy that put Laurel with Hardy and was involved in a lot of their early productions. Uh, but anyway, uh, we were supposed to be watching a TV set, and Paul Newman walks in and is saying hi, boys, and talking to us. And, you know, we, our, our direction was don't pay any attention to him, don't look at him, just stare at the TV set, don't say anything. And so we ignore him. And we shot it a couple times, and then the director came up to my brother and said, hey, it doesn't look like you're looking at the TV set. You're looking just over here. I needed to look right at the TV set, so we did it again. And I could see he was getting irritated, and I don't know what my brother was doing, but, yeah, the frustration finally uh, was kind of boiling over, and it was lunchtime, and they sent my brother to an ophthalmologist who checked his eyes, and they said, hey, he's got a cross eye. He's never going to look like he's looking at the TV because he's looking at the TV. Um, so Barry got fired by noon and by one o'clock I had a new brother so that was Barry's auspicious uh, 
you know, break into show business too. He got fired on his first job by no less than Leo McCary. So um, that that was kind of weird. But then, yeah, Barry started following my footsteps. Uh, it's probably because he was three years younger. So by the time nineteen. 19- 59 rolled around um, right at the end of it. I knew I was going to be doing my two sons. And uh, so Barry continued on Ozzy and Harriet for another dozen, two dozen shows on Ozzy and Harriet and kind of took my place as like the proverbial neighborhood kid. And uh, yeah. And well, in between that too, in 1958, because I was doing Ozzy and Harriet, I used to wander around to other sound stages to see what other people were doing. The stage next to us had a horse. Of course, I, I loved animals when I was a kid, still do. And so I would go over there and talk to the trainer. He'd let me pet the horse, feed the horse. Well, you know, I had no idea who the horse was. It was a horse. Well, it was Mr. Ed. It was the horse playing Mr. Ed on the Mr. Ed soundstage. Uh, next door to that, there was a, uh, or should I say, across the way, there was another show that had a dog on basket. I'd go over and play with him, and, you know, the trainer was really cool. He showed me how to do hand signals. Anyway, one day when I was over there, this guy, well, he looked like an old man to me, but he was probably about 30, came up and said, who are you? You know, my name is Stanley Livingston, kind of laughed. And he said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I come over to visit this dog, and I'm over shooting on, you know, Ozzy and Harriet. So he was asking me a lot of questions. So it it ended up, he said, could I meet your mom? And I remember I said, am I in trouble? And he said, no, no, you're not in trouble. I just want to meet your mom. So I said, okay. So I remember I led him back over to the house in Paris. said, oh, hey, mom, this guy wants to meet you. And I saw my mom, her eyes widened, and I didn't know why. But anyway, so they stood there talking. I kind of wandered away, but kind of kept my eye on him from a distance. Anyway, the guy was Jackie Cooper, who was, he was the star of the show that was across the way. It was called The People's Choice, and uh, he was one next to Shirley Temple, the biggest kid star ever. In fact, uh, he had won, not won, but was nominated for an Academy Award in 1931 for this movie called Skippy. And I believe Skippy won the Academy Award, as did the director, Norman Tarog. And to this day, Jackie Cooper is still the youngest person ever nominated for a lead role in a uh, in a movie. So um, anyway, uh, they had that conversation. And this was probably about September of 1958. And by December 1958, uh, Jackie Cooper wrote a uh, pilot, TV pilot, to star me, which was called Skippy. So I guess he saw himself in me and thought maybe skipping the movie that he was in might make a you know potential TV series. And we shot the pilot in uh, December of 1958. And that was under contract with Jackie till, I guess, through 1961. I think he had a three-year contract on me. Anyway, about a year or so later, it looked like it wasn't going to sell. And I don't know what the business problems were and whatever. But uh, my three sons had come along for me and the producers actually saw uh, Skippy. My parents and my agent rented a theater so that they could watch me perform and get an idea. And Skippy was a great piece for me because I was literally on screen literally almost every minute of the time had the other half of the dialogue with whoever I was talking to. So it was pretty, pretty awesome role to have when you're like, you know, seven, eight years old and be able to pull it off. So I got, 
they wanted to hire me for my reasons, and my parents had to go back to Jackie Cooper and get me out of the contract, which he gracefully let me out. And uh, next thing I knew, the next we shot my three sons pilot, and the next year we were shooting it, and it went on the air in September of 1960, and ran for 12 years. Who knew? I know it's 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 amazing because I mean you you, you ran the whole decade and into a little bit of the 70s. I mean that's just a, such an amazing run, and the cast yeah, is just actually, awesome. Yeah, it's the second longest running sitcom that was ever on TV, right behind Ozzie and Harriet. Uh, so Ozzie and Harriet went 14 years, I think 435 episodes. We went 12 years, 380, you know, produced episodes. So, and you know, the show too was kind of a, a crown jewel for CBS. Why? Not because it was my three sons, but the fact that it had Fred McMurray starring in it, who in 1960 was the highest paid actor in Hollywood. It was a huge, huge, huge actor with a you know incredible body of work. Uh, you know, all the way back from the 30s, you know, when he started with Double Indemnity, uh, The Egg and I, and so many movies. And then in the late 50s, he uh, started doing work for Disney, who paid him a really good salary, but plus gave him like an enormous amount of Disney stock, which became very valuable. And, you know, he did The Shaggy Dog and uh, The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, Mauvage, you know, a whole bunch of uh, Disney films, uh, the shag, I said the Shaggy Dog, and I think the idea for my three sons, somebody saw that. I mean, when I look at it now, I'm going, that has to be where the inspiration for my three sons, because it was a father, and he had three kids. There's a dog, and the missing one was Uncle Charlie or Bub, and you add that to it, and you pretty much have my three sons. So, and from my understanding, if I if I read correctly. Because in his contract, he had to set up a certain shooting schedule for him where he was only there, I think, to shoot two of the days, and then the other episodes were shot, so that way he can still do film projects. So that led you to have a very um, unusual shooting schedule as a sitcom, right? Yeah, it wasn't quite like that. He he would work for a couple of months, and he was in every single shot. Okay. And uh, But sometimes we didn't finish a, a scene. If he walked out of it, we'd cut, they'd take a picture. And we'd come back maybe months later and finish that scene without him that he wasn't in. Or there would be scenes that he would ultimately walk through the front door and come into, and we would shoot it up to that point. And then, you know, whatever, six months later when he'd come back, we'd all get in position and he'd, you know, walk through the door. And they'd just do it as a cutaway, so seamlessly edited together, and then he'd be there. But, yeah, the way it worked is he'd work for about two months, go away for the summer for about three months, and then come back and work another two or three months. So we shot out the year. In the beginning of the show in 1960, uh, we shot for probably nine, almost ten months because we were shooting 39 episodes a year back then. It wasn't like now. You're lucky if you get an order for ten. Most of the time, it's six, seven episodes, and that's it. But we were doing 39 episodes that had to be written, shot, edited, and, you know, it was on the air before we were even finished shooting most of them. So we are slowly playing catch-up all year just to get episodes as quickly finished as we could so they could go on the air. But that went on for about three years, and I think it went down to about 36 episodes and 33 and Eventually, by the last year, I think we were shooting, I think the last year we shot 24, which is still a lot, but not like in the beginning. Yeah, which which has to be unusual for, good and bad for you guys as actors, because you're, you know, you're, you're having to remember all these different episodes 
months later, you know, you're picking up different things or doing different spots, but then yeah. on the good part, it probably helps you down the road because things are filmed, especially in movies and other stuff so much out of sequence that you're just used to, you get, yeah. you get that training for that part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, eventually became my goal was to become like a, a director and producer. So having that training to know that, that, you know, there is no particular order you have to shoot anything in, but you certainly have to be aware of what you're shooting and, where exactly it is in the totality of the film so that you're at the right emotional level or the right pacing and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that was really prepared me well, uh, you know, for stuff I did later you know, to have that and to know it could be done. And, and on occasion, I had to do that. <laughs> so I once had to shoot something completely backwards because the call time for these dancers that were supposed to be there um, at the end, they could only come between certain hours. So we had to shoot their stuff out first and then completely shoot the thing backwards. So I had blocked it out. So I always knew where I was, but it didn't throw me a bit. I go, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> it's like, no, it really doesn't. So, um, you know, when you get in the editing room, you just put it together backwards. It's all make sure you have everything. I think that's the key thing when a director has a, a good game plan and they know there's always going to be something that could come up, something that could happen. And you have to alter. It's like, Oh, we were going to film this scene, but no, let's go to this spot because we're having technical difficulties here or somebody could be ill or whatever. And you got to roll yeah. with it. Got to roll with it. But I mean, you know, you're trying to shoot with there what you thought you wanted, but then at the same time you're always in your mind's eye, you're watching what's going down or for an opportunity you may not have thought of till you see it up on its feet and people do things and then something, you look at it and go, that's funny, you know, that mistake you made, <laughs> let's keep that in. I want that. And, or, or shoot it both ways so you have it both things. It's just, yeah, I mean, you're looking for, besides, you know, what's there, you're looking for spontaneity and, you know, you're looking for what I call happy accidents to happen. Yeah, a really good illustration that was the movie uh, American Graffiti. I don't know how familiar you are with it, the scene where Terry the Toad rides in on that little Vespa. And uh, Charlie didn't really know how to ride a motorcycle or a Vespa. So in the shot, he thought he had it down and drove in and starts to get off of him. And he didn't kill the engine. He let the clutch back out and the thing took off on him and ran into, I think it looked like a cigarette machine or something. And George Lucas said, cut, print, let's move on. Charlie said, hey, I, you know, hey, I, you know, I almost fell off the bike and it ran into the thing. And he's like, perfect, perfect. Because it's so that character, you know, a guy's like a nerd and a klutz. And you, you, nobody thought of that to write that into the script, to have that happen. It just was, again, a happy mistake or somebody does something. He thought that's better than what was written. I'm keeping it. So I think they used all kinds of stuff like that in the movie. The scene where um, that guy robbed the well, didn't rob his box of liquor for Charlie Martin came running out and threw the bottle to him, and he almost he was fumbling with it, <laughs> almost dropped it. Well, you know, every time they rehearsed it, he caught it, and that was that. But you know, to have that tape where he's fumbling, <laughs> trying to you know keep it from hitting the pavement, uh, you know, it was great. That that that's really what you're looking for. You know, if, if you're a really good director, you're in tune to that. You wouldn't say cut. Well, okay, try and catch it next time. You know, you you go with that because that's how, that's reality. That's how life is. You know, life is just a series of accidents like that. And you know, the one that comes out perfectly 
it just looks like they rehearsed it then. So I'm always for that. And it, it adds that naturalism to it because it is natural. It's like it, this is this is real life. It's happening, and you can't you can't yeah. fake it. So it it makes it look even yeah. better. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. And on the set, you know, because you rehearse things, they always kind of go as planned. Where you know you're looking for the one that didn't go as planned, if that's possible. You know, another way to get the actors to do that is to do it and then just say, let's let's do it a little bit different. You know, don't stick with those lines. Let's try to, you know, just say what you feel like saying. You know, something like that, but something else. Or, you know, have the guy come out and maybe, you know, who knows, he spins around and then throws the bottle for whatever reason. So you're kind of, you know, trying to stir the pot a little bit just to, just to see what else you can get and how the actors deal with it in character. And that's really important as an actor to stay in the character, stay in the moment. So that way it, it, it keeps everything going. And I think in that one scene you're talking about where he, with the scooter, if I remember right, and it's been a while since I've seen it, he did something with his hair right afterwards. Like he was fixing his hair, you know, like it, you know, yeah, yeah, staying he, with it. Right. Which is, you're trying to look cool. You know, <laughs> that didn't just happen. Nobody saw that. Yes, I got to make myself look good for the girls. Hopefully they didn't see that, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he totally stayed in character. Uh, it was a, one of my favorite scenes in, in all of movies <laughs> to have something like that. Uh, he's a good actor. And it, it, it's like you said, happy accidents. And um, going back to my three sons, William Farley, you know, it's I've seen him in so many different movies, but everybody knows him from I Love Lucy, you know, I think, and that, yeah. as Fred Mertz. But He's also right there in your show for the first several seasons, first like what five years or so of it. And what was what was your relationship like with him? Because I remember I met you at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention in the Maryland area a few uh, years oh, back. Yeah, yeah. And um, during that, I think he used to have you. Go, maybe it was you and Barry. Maybe it just been you. It was probably just you maybe one of the other guys go do pranks on Vivian Vance on the studio next door. Yeah. Yeah. So they were shooting the Lucy show by then. They were on the next sound stage over and Phil was always kind of pulling pranks on her and doing things. But yeah, he had us gather a bunch of film tins that the reels went into. And there were these flimsy, you know, tin things. And if they fall over, they, they do make a lot of noise. They're like symbols almost. So he had us uh, gather like a, like a whole box full. And we went over on the next sound stage. We were kind of over by the door. We said, wait, wait. And then when he heard her her voice, she was rehearsing. You know, we threw the thing up in the air and all these tins landed and started rolling around and making all this noise. And she knew what it was. He you know, immediately yelled out, Bill! <laughs> Hey, he laughed, and then we, we made a run for it. You know, run for it, boys. <laughs> and we run off their stage. But, yeah, he would. He was always doing some little prank or doing something, or they were always yelling things. And it was kind of good-natured. I don't that feud that they talk about, I, you know, I just think it was like one of those things actors get into and start pulling pranks. Or In their case, they were yelling four-letter words at each other. And the more people that were around, the better it was. You know, they like to entertain people. So uh, they surely did that. <laughs> well, that is true. And, and to me, he sounds like he was like a mischievous grandfather for you and the other guys. Like, oh, let's go do this prank yeah. or that prank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was kind of that guy. Well, I didn't know either of my uh, real maternal or paternal grandfathers. So uh, 
I was looking for one, and then uh, I knew who he was because I was a fan of I Love Lucy and found out he was going to be the grandfather of the show. And kind of set out to make it my mission that he's becoming my grandfather. So I kind of forced myself off <laughs> that I was going to, I was always around or coming to his dressing room, yay, whatever he got a kick out of me because I was pretty, you know, pretty loud and pretty crazy guy too when I was a kid. So yeah, we hit it off. Go back to his dressing room when we weren't working, play checkers, smoke cigars and stuff like that. If the welfare worker had only known, <laughs> man, I would, yeah, we'd go to lunch with him every day at a restaurant called Nicodell's. You know, he'd have a couple of belts. He'd always buy me one because I couldn't drink it because my, uh, my guardian was there who was looking out for my welfare. So I, she'd make this little sign and, that meant dump it out under the table. <laughs> but the bell, you know, it looked like I drank it. I'd do it when he wasn't looking to get distracted. But anyway, yeah, he was just, just a lovable, irascible guy, you know. Like I said, we really bonded. And it was fun having him on the show till he got sick and they couldn't bring him back for insurance reasons. So it was uh, just before the fourth year, I guess it was, started. And that was the end, and they ended up replacing him with Bill Demers. So, who was a, another kind of guy cut, at least on screen, from you know from the same cloth. But Bill was probably more true to his character off screen than Bill, Bill Demers was. That was just a character and a role, and he's just, you know, regular, friendly old guy outside of that. But... Bill was always, you know, entertaining people and yelling outrageous things, <laughs> doing outrageous things. Uh, but Bill Demarest was a little more sedate. And and William Demarest was in so many movies. I think it was like it's almost like two hundred credits. And one of my favorite roles of yeah. his is it's a mad, 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 mad world where he plays the police chief. Was getting yeah. and gets yeah. back with Spencer. It's just I just love that role. I think it was um, you know, I just remember saying, "Yo, yo, go on the phone, call Pepper." Pick up the phone. Answer back. <laughs> yeah, no, he was great in everything he was in. Uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Uh, I'm trying to think all the uh, different films he was in, but there were many. And, you know, he was, you know, in the scheme of things, probably a bigger Hollywood player than uh, Bill Frawley. Bill Frawley worked throughout his career, but nothing, uh, you know, of the noter. Yeah, the notoriety that Bill Demas had as being kind of a quintessential second banana on film. You know, he's always the lead detective or the friend of the best friend of the main character. You know, would have all the good lines and stuff like that. Um, but he, you know, had an elevated career in the industry. You know, with A-list directors and all that. And yeah, Bill worked too, and you know, some of his films were cool, but nothing like you know Bill Demas. That is so true. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I just, I don't know. I just think you got to work with two guys that were um, from the same acting generation with two different approaches mm -hmm. going into it, which probably helped you out as an actor because you were able to hear different things and see different things that how they approached doing scenes. Yeah. Although, you know, I probably didn't really use them as a model, but, you know, I didn't, think to do that with them because they were so much older you know both of them were about 70 when they uh started on the show and that was you know i, I just couldn't even imagine somebody being seven years old that being said i'm almost 72 so 
You know, I used to remember when I'd say, gosh, I'm going to be Fred McMurray's age when he played with dad on the show. Now I'm going to say, I'm, I'm Bob or Uncle Charlie's age now. <laughs> so that, that's a head trip. You know, you never think you, you'll get there, but I'm there. Uh, and, you know, they, they just, but to me, they looked old. old. I mean, not that I'm not old, but they looked old, you know, even when I was a kid. Even when they were younger, they looked old. They just had a different demeanor about them. And I don't know. Well, I think the quality of life and how people lived were so much different back then. Because you know, anytime you look at the old family photos of people that were in their 40s and 50s, and you think they're 60s and their their 60s and 70s and so on, it's just, um, it's just, it's just yeah. it blows the well, mind sometimes. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. Those pictures of my dad when he's like 36, 37. To me, he looks like he's 65 then. <laughs> yeah, he just looks old with bad haircuts, bad glasses, bad clothing. Uh, ages you and you know Bill Frawley's case was probably having those couple of drinks uh, at lunch and God knows how many at dinner uh, you know that stuff takes its toll over 70 years so I've tried to steer away from that using them as the example or especially Bill about how not to lead your life well I will say there was some people that you seem if I've read correctly follow around and and tried to pay attention to what they're doing when you weren't in scenes. And it seems to be the directors and, and the, and the mm-hmm. people behind the scenes, like how they were doing the setting up the shots and things like that. Yeah. Well, as an actor, I was there to do an acting role, but when I got to be about 15, probably 16 years old, I was interested in filmmaking and the process. So we're better to learn about it than, you know, with all these people, uh, you know, our crew was pretty aged. But these these guys were at one time, you know, young guys too, and working in the movie industry back in the thirties, forties, and had fairly good careers. And some of them had won awards or Academy awards. And uh, you know, now they were the guys working on our show, and they were more than happy to share what they had learned and you know why you did certain things, and you know would explain how cameras work and little lenses and parallax and you know all the different film stocks that, well, there weren't that many available back then, but there were a few in how they worked. And same thing with the editing people, and, uh, the people that put our production together, the production boards and scheduling, you know, why this was done here and not tomorrow, or why did we do this at noon instead of first thing in the morning? You know, to get all those kind of questions you may have had answered by somebody who knew what they were doing. Um, you know, you can either be an, an actor and on the set, you come up and do your lines and then go sit back in your chair or go to mostly to your dressing room. I just hung out with the crew. You know, I wanted to know like why we're using a 5k instead of a 10k light and why, you know, why were you closing the barn doors this way instead of that way? And what are you trying to cut off? You know, so you'd have all those things. I just, I'd always been like that. I was like one of those kids who would buy something and then take it apart and put it back together so to me this is like the perfect place to learn everything and you know they you know humored me by you know doing it and providing explanations which stuck with me so you, you later when i set out on my own i kind of had a little bit of an idea what I, I was doing and try to remember as much of it as you could but uh you know, it's better than not knowing anything, which is what a lot of people that come to our business have. Is, you know, they may have some practical experience from taking classes, but 
you know, I had the lessons learned, you know, actually doing it as opposed to, you know, mock situations. Yeah, it was a great education. I I can't imagine, uh, you know, doing it any other way. I was really fortunate from, from that standpoint. In a sense, you were being paid to get educated and how to do all that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically you're being paid to learn. Although I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. I just, wanted to know maybe in the back of my mind but you know hmm, i'm kind of interested in this and you know by the time i was like 18 19 i knew i wanted to do it and i was still on my three sons but i had formed a production company with a guy that i met at college and you know we tried to solicit work uh you know educational films industrials commercials music video whatever we could get you know uh, shoot it (laughs) yeah now i'll also be remiss if i didn't bring up your talking about your two brothers and then eventually the adopted brother, you know, but it's like, cause it is my uh-huh. three sons. So what was it like? I mean, before we talk about working with your real brother, Barry, what was it like working with the, um, um, Tim and Don? Uh, well, Tim, I knew about, cause I was a fan of the Mouseketeers, you know, and part of the Mickey Mouse club was Spin and Marty and the Hardy boys. So I knew Tim from that. He wasn't a Mouseketeer. And Don was also, he was a Mouseketeer, so I knew who he was. And he had just done a movie that I remember seeing uh, in the theater. Uh, it was a gangster film called Ma Barker and her Killer Brood. And he plays Herman, the sissy brother. And, you know, they're always teasing and beating him up. I think he finally get shot or something. And those were... Interestingly, uh, early films, gangster films by uh, AIP, American International Pictures, who went on to do all those Roger Corman films in the late 50s, early 60s. So they were just starting out and you know putting together what they thought would be classified as exploitational material. And uh, yeah, so that's how I was introduced to Don and he came on the show. Uh, although it's, it's funny, Don wasn't the first choice for the brother. Tim, they wanted because Tim had a body of work. Uh, he'd, he'd done feature films before, and you know was a known quantity from the Disney thing. In fact, Tim was actually in the uh, the Shaggy Dog with Fred McMurray, so uh, they knew about him. But uh, yeah, originally we started to shoot with another actor, um, an actor named uh, Robert Diamond, Bobby Diamond, who was on a TV show called Fury before that with Peter Graves. And I don't know what the story was. I, I never really thoroughly understood. I think he kind of had a, a really aggressive stage mother, mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was making some kind of demands, and they just like, can't deal with this, and they let him go. And then they got another actor. We started to shoot again, and they just didn't think this guy was could do comedy, uh, so they let him go. And my mother knew Mary Grady, Don's mom, who was uh, pretty well-known children's agent in the business by that point called her up and said, Hey, they're recapping the part of Robbie again. Why don't you get Don down here? And, uh, anyway, she mentioned it to the production manager and they agreed to see him. And anyway, about three or four days later, we started to shoot the pilot again with Don Grady. So that's, that's how he came into it. And, uh, you know, late, but uh, better late than never. And funny though, the guy that they, the, the second guy who they didn't think could do comedy, that was Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> really? So uh, who went on to have a huge career, you know, with Barbara Streisand. I think he was on the original Peyton Place. Uh, Love but, story. Yeah, went on to have 
you know, Love Story, What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand. I mean, just, you know, tons of big movies. But I guess he just hadn't, you know, fully trained or, you know, wasn't that great yet. Or I don't know, maybe they were just looking for a different look. I, I never really knew the truth. But, yeah, it's how it goes down. A lot of people worked on the show. I mean, that was the thing about My Three Sons is we had a lot of old-timers that worked on the show that were, you know, formerly big movie stars. Uh, Lou Ayers, Sylvia Sidney, uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> it was amazing how many people worked on the show. Uh, yeah, there's a, somewhere you can look it up on the internet, the full cast list from My Three Sons. You'll be blown away. And then in addition to them, there were people just starting their careers. Uh, Bo Bridges. Uh, Jody else, Foster. Uh, Jody Foster. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's even a... Uh, a scene, this like cracks me up. Uh, they show, there was a show where they had Fred and his character's an aeronautical engineer. And in one episode, there was a flashback where it showed him when he was younger, you know, like probably in his 20s, in, uh, in some kind of, you know, drafting place where they're drafting airplanes. Anyway, the guy playing Steve Douglas, uh, young, was Tom Skerritt. So, yeah, they were all. It's crazy how many people, Martin Sheen, uh, Sally Kellerman, and just, you know, everybody kind of was either there starting their career or, you know, their careers had peaked and they were, you know, trying, just wanted to work at that point. Steve Arden, uh, and then just the list goes on and on. I think that's what happens when you have a show that goes on for 12 seasons. I mean, it's just, you, you have working actors out there for, you know, starting out or, the tail end and they're just coming in or do you just want to have some work to do in between projects? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was sort of a prestigious show to be seen on. So, you know, it wasn't like you're on a morning show, like romper room or something. This was a top rated, you know, TV series that starred a major movie star, Fred McMurray. So people wanted to be there and be a part of that. So they would jockey for a position to get, to get roles, you know, Fortunately, uh, yeah, we used a lot of those people, which was a great thing for the show, too. Now, around the time My Three Sons started, you were in a movie, um, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, with mm-hmm. Doris Day, David Niven. Um, you know, mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah, it was just, you know, another job for me. Uh, you know, it was a movie, so it was the prestige of that. And then obviously working with Doris in a Doris Day film. Uh, you know, kind of knew who she was, even though I was a kid. David Niven, I'd heard of him, but, you know, he didn't really, you know, ring my bell or whatever. <laughs> he wasn't an American actor. But it was kind of cool in retrospect, like, oh, wow, you actually worked with David Niven. You know, did scenes with him. It was really nice, and so was she. Uh, but, yeah, you know, looking at it in, in retrospect, it, it's very cool to have that, that film in my, uh, my caliber of, films um yeah plus the two guys that worked on it were they did a lot of work too the uh guy that played my twin was named clip mark and he was in a lot of tv stuff a lot of movies they worked he worked on my two sons later and then charlie herbert who between the three of us he was a pretty big child star at that time he'd done a lot of movies uh 13 ghosts and and some other films where he was really the, you know, maybe even billed above the adults. So he, he was kind of cool guy. And he eventually came over and did a couple of my three sons too as well. So yeah, almost everybody I worked with eventually made it over to 
my two sons, you know, Bobby Crawford. Uh, I don't know if Paul Peterson worked on it or not, but uh, he probably did, I guess. It's hard to remember everybody. Well, yeah, but Flip Mark yeah. and I are going to be, I'm going to be interviewing Flip Mark down the road because he's already agreed. So. Oh, well, say hi for me. Yeah. Yeah. We've been in contact a little bit over the last couple of years. Yeah. He, he, nice guy. Flip's good. Oh, the other one, which I think is Jay North. He, he worked on the show a couple of times too. We got to play Dennis and Dennis. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm trying to get an interview with, um, um, was it Jeannie Russell? Who was Margaret? Oh yeah, Jean. Huh? She was yeah, Margaret. Yeah, right? she was Margaret. Yeah, on Dennis the Menace. Yeah, I don't know if Jay does stuff anymore. I don't. Somebody told me he's sort of like a, a reclusive guy, so he hardly ever does it. Jeannie, I think she does stuff. So it's always hard, you know. Everybody, people say, why don't people do it like yourself? Like you're taking the time to do an interview and that kind of stuff. It's just. You get asked a lot of times, I'm sure, for interviews, especially because my three sons, like we said, is is playing in perpetually for 62 years, so it's always being introduced to new people, and a lot of the questions you're getting are the same questions and that kind of stuff. But so I could see where some people would be tired of doing it, and other people would be like, "No, they're fine," because there's people out there that are experiencing the first time and they're getting to hear these for the first time. Yeah, well, every show has its own audience, so I don't feel like I'm talking to exactly the same people every time and every host is different, you know? Uh, so yeah, you know, I try to accommodate everybody as best I can. I just space them out so I don't go crazy. Maybe do one or two a week and then do it for a while. And then I'll take off a month and whatever, push everybody downstream, give my mouth a rest. <laughs> <laughs> now you were in a movie X 15, which had two first Richard Donner's first, theatrical film and it was the first yep. one Mary Tyre Mary Tyre Moore was in and you got to act with mm-hmm. Charles Bronson. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Again, that was yeah, you know, that was cool. And I, I was an airplane buff when I was a kid too. So getting to be around the X fifteen and getting to crawl through it, meeting the pilots who would come down to the set or they'd invite us to things, you know, that they were doing that was yeah, it was like a big deal for me, you know, to do that. And, you know, Charlie Bronson at that time was just coming up, I think, on people's radar. I think it was just before The Great Escape and uh, the other movie, Ma- Magnificent Seven, that he had done. So, you know, uh, yeah, he was a good actor, an interesting type. You know, it's just you didn't see a lot of people looking that ethnic back then, you know, doing the lead. So I thought he was, you know, it was a good choice, and he was a very competent actor. So, and then Richard Donner was basically a, a TV director in those days, and you know was looking for opportunities. And this one came up, and that was his first feature film. And then I worked with him again later. I think it was in 1974. I went out uh, to Universal, and I think he had requested to see me because in Exorcine I had a big crying scene where my father blows up in a jet and I see it happen through a telescope and he just always you know remembered that and thought I was you know a great little actor and a guy that could cry on cue so anyway in this he was directing a tv movie called Lucas Tanner with David Hartman and uh, there was a scene in there where they, one of the uh, teenagers uh, a friend of his dies and he's a pallbearer at a, at a funeral and I guess the emotion overwhelms him, and you know he 
ends up running away and David Hartman comes over and he ends up bursting into tears. Well, that was me. I'm sure Dick brought me back and I could cry, you know. Like, yeah, and we, we see friends over there. You know, that's that's different when you're a kid, you see people. But, you know, once you're like an adult, it's, you know, just like some guy, you know, and I used to run into the parties or different things. And, you know, he's just a genuinely super nice guy, at least he was to me my whole career. I, I did this project, I guess it was about eight, ten years ago, called The Actor's Journey, uh, which is this program I put together for actors, uh, you know, to have like a, a thorough education in the business side of our industry. Because that, that's kind of what's missing out of the picture. Everybody goes off and learns how to become an actor, the art craft of acting, and don't know what to do with it on a daily basis. So what this means and that means. So I brought 100 people from the entertainment industry together, 45 of whom had either won or been nominated for Academy, Emmy, Golden Globe Awards. Uh, it wasn't just actors talking about actors, but producers, uh, showrunners, uh Casting directors, casting agents, uh, directors. I had the president of the Screen Actors Guild, the president of the Directors Guild of America, and they were they're the people that teach this program. And uh, anyway, I called Dick and said, "Hey, look, I'm looking for pretty high profile uh, director to talk about actors and the business of acting from a director's point of view." So he said, "Tell me where and when. I'll be there." And true to his word, I, I gave him a date. And, a limo pulled up, he got out of the game inside, and he was there for, you know, about two or three hours while we shot the material and, you know, talked, and I think we had lunch, and then he, yeah, took off. That goes back to a lot of things, and just like everything in life is the relationships you develop and how you treat people that you're working with is always going to be remembered. So if you do your job well and you treat everybody well, you know, and you're not, you're not a, nuisance so to speak or worse you know or diva type no. or whatever people people will find work for you yeah or you know yeah or at least take your phone calls anyway <laughs> i've just always looked at myself as like a worker bee or a cog in the wheel you know yeah i was on a tv that was famous for a while and still is i guess but uh you know you're, you're i'm like anybody else in show business i'm always looking for what's next and you know what can i do or how can i help somebody else or whatever it's just there were people there to help me all along the way you know like richard donner he didn't have to show up you know i mean he's working with major movie stars by that point and directing bill gibson and you know, Christopher Reeves making huge movies, but hey, you know, he stopped his day, came over, and, you know, because he personally liked me and could see I was doing something beneficial for the industry and specifically for actors so they could grasp this ephemeral thing called the business side of being an actor, you know, where it's just not a lot of information and the colleges, for whatever reason, teach you the basics, which is, you know, get a reel, get a resume try and get an agent, try and get in the Screen Actors Guild, but, you know, they don't exactly tell you the order of things or the problems that can occur because you do certain things out of order. And, you know, we just wanted to get it right. So uh, I took a few years out of my life and put together this program, which is a 10-hour-long program, uh, which will be up on the Internet hopefully in another probably about two months. We've just transcoded all the stuff so it can go up 
and be streaming media. It was a DVD product, which we'll still have that too, but the uh, streaming part, I think, will be make it much more available to people. And in smaller doses, you don't have to buy the whole thing. You kind of go through it at your leisure, but you, know, you should if you're smart. It's a shame to go spend five, ten thousand dollars learning how to act, and you know, letting a program that costs a couple hundred dollars stand between you and work. So, uh, yeah, you know, especially because you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of experience, all maybe up to a thousand, all, all in that, yeah. that that thing. So we're talking about, uh, and because people people talk to other actors, but it's just I used to work at a college campus, and um, and people would always ask the other people, the other students well, what about this or what about that? And I would always tell my children, no, no, you don't don't trust what your roommates tell you. They could be right. You go to somebody that actually knows what they're talking about. So you go to that person that's in the college that knows what they're doing because yeah. that's their job because they don't, they might know it, but odds are they probably don't know it that well. <laughs> yeah, and that's even the problem with college professors is that, you know, well, number one, they're teaching you acting, not the business part, but, you know, they can dispense some advice, but these are people that really have, became teachers they didn't become actors and know what the daily grind of, of the business really is all about you know the business part of being an actor or the non-performance skills needed to start a career and perpetuate it and you know what happens if this happens what happens if that happens they get all those questions answered and it's better i think to have them all answered as much as you can before you start you know so that you don't have to go out there and learn as you're doing and spending, you know, five, 10 years of your life assimilating and trying to figure it all out here. It's like, here it is. Here it all is. You can learn it, you know, in one big gulp, you know, it might take you a couple of days to get through it and you probably want to watch it two or three times, but you'll have a pretty good grasp on what's required and what you need to do. And when this happens, this is what this means because nobody's going to decode or explain it to you. So, uh, especially at the beginning of your career, you don't know anybody or everybody you know is on your level. So, yeah, again, it's like you were saying, you need people that have been through the mill and, you know, been abused by the industry <laughs> and have taken those steps and, you know, impart the advice to you so that every actor that comes to the industry uh, isn't responsible for reinventing the same wheel. It's like, here's the wheel. Which is smart. And, um, one of the things I noticed with your career, you were, you were kind of like a Kevin Bacon type where you can do these six or seven degrees of separation type things. And a lot of it comes from how the West was won, because which, which pretty much has just about everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why. <laughs> like I worked with everybody in show business. Well, how could you have done that? Well, I did it by the time I was 12. But how? Well, I was in a movie that had everybody in it. That's how. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a phenomenal movie. Again, when you're doing it, um, I just wanted to be in a in a western. That that was when I was. That's the reason I got into show business. When I was playing that little TV screen in my backyard, I was playing a cowboy. My mom, you know, bought me a couple of cowboy outfits and cap guns and all that. So I, I wore that. Probably looked like an idiot, but. Uh, I was waiting for somebody to discover me and put me in a cowboy show. And that never happened. I couldn't believe it. All my friends were, you know, getting on the Virginian wagon train and have that to travel. I never got any of that, you know. Uh, finally, in whatever it was, 1962, 63, I got cast in How the West Was Won. So it was like a dream come true that I was going to be in a Western, get to ride a horse and, you know, 
have play with a gun. <laughs> you know, I was going to be a real cowboy. And I, you know, little did I know the impact that was going to have on, uh, you know, Westerns and culture, but it actually turned out to be the last Cinerama movie made, uh, you know, the real, the real deal, not the uh, phony cinemascope version of Cinerama. But three strips in a rama shot with three cameras, lashed together, running 35 millimeter film, and projected that way with three projectors. So it was sort of a phenomenal uh, movie, just in how it looked, and also because everybody who was anybody in Hollywood wanted to be in that film and was. So um, if I had to pick a western to be in, that was the one. I'll say, you know, it's. It, it, Fate worked out for you because, you know, it's like, I want a Western. I want a Western. I want a Western. And here you were rewarded with the Western. I mean, you know, with every yeah. single person in it, they could be, but George Papard, you know, played your dad. I mean, you, you were in, I think of Carolyn Jones, I think played your mom. You, you had all these different yeah. people that are yeah. acting. Like I said, you worked with acting legends. And um, I don't know. Yeah. What Eli memories Wallach, do you have? Eli, Eli. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, you know, got to meet everybody, of course, you know, because they were around when we weren't shooting their scenes. So, yeah, it was just, you know, the likes of John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Walter Brennan, um, kind of thing, Henry Fonda, Stuart um, Whitman. No, not you. you know, who am I thinking of? There's one other guy that was huge in it. Um, but, yeah, it was just so cool to, you know, be around all those guys and everybody's dressed up in Western gear. But most of my memories of that movie were, were because I worked with this legendary director named Henry Hathaway. Who, you know, he's the one that eventually did True Grit with uh, John Wayne. But, you know, he was a formidable <laughs> force in the industry. He's the one that cast me, and he, you know, just seemed so nice, you know, when I went on the uh, interview and met him and, you know, found out that he wanted me for that part. But on the set, he was just another guy, man, that it's like Hitler incarnate. <laughs> screaming at everybody, firing blanks at people, screaming, you know, whether you're eight or 80, you know, he had a pretty foul mouth and would unleash on you all the time. But I didn't know what to make of that. You know, I was used to being directed with people more the demeanor of Ozzie Nelson. That was these nice guys and considerate of children, not Henry, who was a monster. But that being said, it was only during the actual shooting part of it. Like when they would say cut and it's time for lunch, you had a break for lunch, he would turn back into this other guy. He was like the nutcase in that Charlie Chaplin film was at City Lights where when the guy is uh, drunk, he's like the nicest guy in the world. And then the morning he wakes up and, you know, he'll beat you up. And he'd been particularly rough on me this one day. And I, which shows me that he kind of knew maybe he was going over the limit. But at lunch, uh, he cut and he walked up to my mom and said, hey, I want to take Stan to lunch. And I remember I looked at my mom with this horrified look like, I don't want to go, you know. Just, oh, yeah, he'd love to go to lunch with you. Like, thanks a lot, Mom. And uh, so got in the car with him, and uh, we were driven back to Prescott, Arizona, where there was some restaurants, ate lunch with him. You know, he was just this really cool guy, you know, talking about my life, my career, what I like to do. And you know, I think I told him, you know, there's a kid then, so I was into, like, rocks and arrowheads and we were in an area where there was Indians in there, and I was out looking for rocks and arrowheads. 
So we walked in. He said, I want to buy you something. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like, is this a bribe or what's going on? But so we walked into a toy store. And uh, so he said, just, you know, pick out anything you want. I said, really? And he's like, yeah. So there was up above, there was like uh, shelves, but on the top, the shelf it was a collection of rocks like in some kind of folding case and it was pretty big it was a couple feet high maybe two feet wide on each panel and it had all these geological samples in there and i said well you know i like rocks he goes all right so get that thing down so guy went up and got it folded it up handed it to me so i now had this huge rock collection i'd have to go look for most stuff and i just thought it was the coolest thing in the world came back showed my mom and uh, you know, and I thought, well, you know, we kind of broke through. He's probably got to be nice to me now that, you know, we kind of connected on a more personal level. And so about one one thirty, when we went back to work, I was in the first scene. And first scene out, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> started off. <laughs> and I'm like, I thought you liked me, you know, and it's just how he was. That guy had a crew guy come up and says, look, don't take it personally. He does that to everybody. You know, he'll have grown men in tears if you let him, but he doesn't mean it. It's just how he is. And what I learned during the course of the production, the only person that wouldn't take that was Debbie Reynolds. If he said anything to her, she would get right back in his face and cuss him out. Like right in his face till he stopped. So everybody, you know, you hear like, the back. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's my Henry Halcoy story. But yeah, it was fun to work with. And then you know, after you're in the industry for a while, you learn a few guys like that that just they like to scream. They're from the old school, and they think that's how you command respect, and you know how you get good performances out of actors. I personally disagree with that because I think the more pleasant you can make it, and the more you have an actor's confidence in that by not intimidating them the looser they feel and the more willing they are to try things and trust you as opposed to trying to get a performance out by screaming. You know, I couldn't see that's necessary unless you're really trying to get on somebody's nerves and that's what's required for the scene. But even still, there, there's got to be other ways to do it. I, I, I never had a direct interview with a scene like that. I mean, you know, when I worked with Jackie Cooper, that was pretty hairy too. And I think he did what he did because that's what happened to him when he was a kid actor and in fact he wrote a book and the name of his biography is pretty much what the director said to him he said look I gotta get this scene you're not crying the way I need you to cry you need to cry for real and if you can't cry on this next take I'm gonna get your dog and I'm gonna shoot it you got it I'm gonna shoot and kill your dog and he immediately <laughs> burst into tears and they got the scene and you know uh, anyway, Jackie pulled a stunt like that on me in my crime scene where he went off on me and I didn't think he liked me anymore. It was psychologically pretty damaging, but I remember when he said, cut, he ran over and picked me up and was carrying me around. Well, no, I really didn't you know, mean that. And I was just trying to do that to get you to cry. And it's what directors, he was trying to ex explain it. But, you know, when I, I just turned eight years old, so... I just knew some guy was screaming at me and being really mean, and I took it personally. And, uh, you know, later I understood why he did it. I was like, "Hey, we got to get out of here. This kid's not crying the way I need him to cry. You know, the tears aren't coming, so I got to get him somehow." So I remember they made the crew go away, and then he screamed at me. 
we got what we got. It's kind of ironic because then years later, you, Richard Donner remembered you because you could cry on cue and, and brought you yeah, back. So yeah, and he, he, he may have seen that um, because my parents were still showing it. In between, you know, Seasons of My Three Sons, I was trying to get acting work uh, in feature films. And this would have been early enough. They, they probably still either had access to that film. And it's just, it's just so weird to me now, you know, how actors... We have reels and resumes, and, and so what we call it reels, really all it is is just little snippets of your work, and we used to put them on videotape, send the videotape to the casting person, and then it became more tech. It was like you had to make a DVD, and now it's all on files, and you just upload them to some site that hosts your your demo reel as an actor. But, you know, in those days before videotape, the only way to see your performance was if it was actually in the movies, somebody had to go spend money on a ticket and get it. But in the case of uh, Skippy, Jackie Cooper had a print of the film or some prints, and my parents would have to go borrow the printer my agent did, rent a theater after midnight when they weren't showing films anymore, hire the projectionist, and show this half-hour-long uh, you know, uh, piece called Skippy. So yeah, I know the producers of uh, My Three Sons were invited to see it, based on that that's how I got hired almost immediately like the next day and I think that happened with Richard Donner too uh, that he had seen that that video he was invited to see it or a copy of it was delivered to his office and they showed it to him and you know he uh, saw it and that's that's the kid you know I always wonder you know how my life would have been completely different had Skippy gone you know and turned into an actual TV show for at least a couple seasons so, you know, we're, because I would have then not been a star of the show, but the star of the show, my name above the title, and, you know, like eight years old. And I remember after that, and it was right around the time my three sons, we had, my parents and agent decided that's what I was doing next, but I was being offered all kinds of movies to be in, you know, um, based on that reel. So, yeah. But everything, you know, I, I was looking at, that's what show business is. It's like, one road leads into another, leads into another, and then you do this, and then because of this, you did that. And while you were there, you met this guy, and he wanted you, and that's pretty much how you know, most of my life has been. It's just been you know, the connections you made and what was going on then. Now, I, there's a few listeners that knew I was going to be interviewing you, and I asked them, what would you want me to ask you about? You know, Because you know, not everybody gets a chance. And, and, and this movie came up the most. So it's it's private parts and, and working <laughs> yeah. with director Paul Bartel. And that was like the big thing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what was it like working with him? Uh, yeah, good. He was an interesting guy. Um, you know, he asked to see me. Uh, so I went in and, you know, I didn't really have to interview per se. I just went over to his house and sat around and, and, and talked. And, I, you know, I didn't know any of his work. He showed me a short that he had just done, which was confidently made. And, uh, you know, like I said, by that point, I knew a little bit about filmmaking. So and I, I just was fascinated. Struck me as like almost like an Alfred Hitchcock kind of guy. And I think that's who he may have wanted to be. And based on the films that he did, uh, they were a little more tawdry, but had, you know, Hitchcock kept going on and on his films became a little bit more that way too but uh yeah so originally uh the movie was called vital parts i didn't i wasn't love the title it was to me it's like 
geez, do I really want to put that on my resume? That title sounds like I'm doing an X-rated movie. And then he goes, well, don't worry about that anymore. I said, oh, thank God, you know, it's got a better title. So he said, yeah, we changed it to private parts. And I'm like, that's even worse. That's what I'm telling you not to do. And it turned out to be uh, a really bad choice of a title for a film. Because in those days, and then I guess it was maybe around 74, I think, that there were there were porno theaters around town, legitimate theaters that had become porno theaters that they advertised in the local newspapers. And what they started doing so the audiences could differentiate, you know, regular theaters or porno theaters was they would gray out the page. It wasn't printed in that same black ink. And you knew when you're on that page, at least in LA, you knew that, you know, you're seeing probably different kind of material at the theater. So um, that's what happened to Private Parts. When it came out, it was a legitimate movie. It was well-made. And, you know, uh, it got a rave review by Judith Christ, who's one of the big reviewers of all time. And, you know, tagged uh, Paul Bartel as perhaps the next uh, Alfred Hitchcock based on that film. And, uh, you know, it was competently made. It had moody lighting. Uh, it was creepy and, like I said, tawdry in a way, pushed the envelope. And, uh, but because of the title, they couldn't get it printed on the regular pages. And it, it really hurt the film. It played for a short while and they ended up, and it was distributed through MGM. So, you know, if it wasn't a film of quality, they would have never picked it up as a distributor. It would have probably gone to AIP or even further down the chain. And it just languished until Ted Turner bought the MGM library. And he liked the film and brought it back out put it on TV. And then they actually took the film and started showing it in theaters again. And it developed a, a cult following. And, you know, meanwhile, Paul went on. We stayed friends, you know, all those years afterwards. But, uh, you know, he started doing other films that were equally as weird, like Eating Raul, which is another film he had, Death Race 2000. So, yeah, he, yeah found a niche for himself and you know uh, and as a person or almost what i would call a personality uh you know i had a had a following and would show up at some of his screenings and talk to the audience but he had a, a way about him that was unusual and i guess in his mind's eye that's how he perceived himself but you know i always liked him we were you know pretty good friends so that's a, that's amazing because i i, I seem to like Eating Raul, I've seen in Death Race 2000, you know, and I, could, I saw Private Parts a while back, and um, I, I had forgotten you were in it until I was prepping for your interview, and I was like, oh, he's in that. Oh, he plays the um, the nice guy that gets, you know, for right. spoiler. I'm the you know. nice guy that gets a <laughs> bottle over my head at the end. I live, I think, if I remember right. You do live. And I see the, the young girl, yeah, she comes down the stairs, and she's now transformed into Lucille Benson. You know, she's got her hair all up like Lucille Benson and kind of like a zombie look to her. But yeah, it was a, you know, good film. I think the guy that was the uh, DP on it, I think his name was Andrew Davis, became uh, became a big director. I, I think that's the same Andrew Davis. I'd have to look it up. I don't have it. Like, yeah, yeah, comments. you can check that out. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's him. You know, where he was the DP, and I, I thought he did a good job. By then, I kind of knew lighting, and, you know, um, you know, I, I knew it was going to look good, and I saw a little bit of the daily. So, you know, I, I figured this guy really kind of added uh, to it. Yep, Andrew so, Davis, yeah. Cinematography. 
Yeah, he was a cinematographer, but I think he became a director. Another guy that went on to become a pretty big uh, producer was our, um, I think he was our production manager on that, a guy named Arnie Schmidt. And he's produced a lot of films. And, you know, back then he, he was either the second assistant director or the production manager. I can't remember what. But he was there. And, you know, a lot of people, as I say, you meet them at a certain point in their career. That's one of the reasons for being nice to everybody. <laughs> because <laughs> you go, wait a minute, that was like the crafts guy, and now he's a big director? <laughs> I think that's why it's, it, you always want to be – I think that's the smart way of doing it because there's a lot of people you read about where they started off as the um, the copy guy that run back and forth or the um, – Assist, yeah. assistant to whoever and then they work their way up the chain they know all the roles that everybody yep. does and then when they hit either you know executive producer or director or whatever they know how to run the film because they've done everything yeah. into it which you've is done good. everything which to me is is really what your job is even if you're an actor is to know about all those positions and parts and maybe even have done them so you have some idea of what it, what it's all about uh, because, yeah, people do go on and change positions. When I did Ozzy and Harriet, there was a young guy that was a focus puller on there who went on to have probably one of the most illustrious careers as a cinematographer, a guy named William Praker. Uh, directed a lot of huge movies. Uh, you know, he was up there with Bill Nozignan and Bill uh, Butler. You know, and, uh, he was the focus puller. <laughs> back, I think my brother Barry knocked knocked a tooth out of his head. He had a yo-yo, and they were playing with the yo-yo, and somehow my brother did something with whack right in his mouth and knocked a tooth out, if I remember right. If I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, you, you had a surfboard at one time, and because they were worried about you, some, somebody got like a, an accident on a surfboard, they told you no more surfing yeah. for you during My Three Sons. Is that true? Yeah. That's true. Well, even more importantly is where the surfboard came from. Uh, when I was 13 or 14, uh, I went out to lunch with Bill Crawley to Nicodell's for my birthday. and the cake there. I just came over. But when I got back to the studio and I had to change my clothes, my wardrobe for the next scene went upstairs and there was a nine-foot-long Dewey Weber surfboard. And it's a two-trip from Uncle Bill. And uh, he bought me the surfboard for my birthday. So that's how I got my surfboard. And I was surfing, but so was, I think this guy was our focus point. I think it was Jules Brenner. And uh, he went surfing and got his front teeth knocked out. And when that happened, uh, he suddenly looked at me and going, are you still surfing? I'm like, yeah. Anyway, they came down with an edict uh, that during the season while we were filming, I could no longer surf. So that was kind of taken away. So that surfboard ended up in my parents' pool. Uh, you know, we tried to keep it there safe, but it, it really got banged up. It was hitting the, the edge all the time, running into the wall. We'd run and jump on it and surf across, you know, like a 40-foot pool. And it was, the nose would collide with the edge of the pool. And after a while, the fiberglass started to disintegrate. And at some point, I guess I was somewhere. My mom made the decision to get rid of it. But I would have never got rid of that. Had it been up to me, I would have just put it in the garage and go, this is from William Frawley. You don't ever get rid of this. But yeah, my mom, she had her own ideas about it. <laughs> That was back in the day when mothers, when sons would disappear, all the comic books would disappear and certain things. They'd go clean the room. Glad the mine. 
my mom took care of my comic books. She took care of my baseball cards. She took care of, I had a collection of marbles, huge collection of these beautiful marbles that I won playing. They were all gone. I said, what did you do it for? And she goes, because you're going to like girls. You're not going to like marbles anymore. You don't need these. (laughs) And I go, yeah, but we're going to put them in the garage. And I would just had them. Or what about all my baseball cards from 1955? You know how much bubble gum I ate to get those (laughs) cards? (laughs) Yeah, crazy. And and for those and for listeners that are really young, this is the this is the old school bubble gum. This is not like you know, th- you know this is the stuff that you yeah, lick a while just to get it moving. Bub- <laughs> yeah, the, the bubble gum was the same shape, you know, maybe twice as thick as a, a playing card. So you had a lot of bubble gum to eat in those days. You'd get two or three of those in your mouth, and you know, hour later you couldn't feel your jaw. Now, one of the things you did for a while was voice work. And how freeing was that for you to start doing a voice act like in the Roman holidays, you know, where you're not being, you know, you, you, now you're at to do all your acting for your voice. Um, yeah, well, I was doing that actually right around the time I was doing private parts. I, I don't remember how that came about my agent. I don't know if he just sent me in there and I auditioned. I don't remember auditioning. So I, I guess the producer uh, just knew my voice and thought it sounded like a you know teenage boy's voice, which uh, regretfully I was in my 20s, but it did kind of sound like that. Uh, and uh, But it was a good thing for them. So I got called in, and uh, I think I recorded something. And, went, yeah, they go be here Monday morning, and, you know, every Monday for, I don't know, I think we did that, 13 weeks worth. Uh, come in and, you know, record the voice of Happiest Holiday, and uh, yeah, it was fun to do. I met Dawes Butler, who was their uh, you know quintessential voiceover guy. You know, he did Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, Quintra McGraw, the great you know Hanna Barbera characters. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, I was again always into pe- picking people's brains and how do you do this and how do you do that. And I could have done a lot more. I think I just wasn't completely into that aspect of, of show business, but. It, it was nice because you go in at nine o'clock and you'd be done by noon. You got a whole day's pay, which was pretty astronomical considering. And um, yeah, it was fun. And then I guess they liked what I did. And you know, from time to time, they would call me on just, hey, could you come in next Tuesday? We're shooting an episode of Scooby Doo's and we need, uh, you know, your voice. And, sure. You know, so I'd go in and get paid and have fun, meet the, the cast. But yeah, it was. Some cool guys that worked on our show. Well, I like Dave Willock, he's a character actor. You know, you know who he is. But we had Mickey Dolans was there quite a bit. Um, Dom DeLuise, another guy. That's where I met him. And he'd have us all in stitches trying to get through the shooting or the recording sessions. But uh, yeah, it was fun. I wish I, I, I think I ended up getting divorced around that time too. So I, you know wasn't as available as I once was, I guess. And they just brought in new people and somebody that, you know, they knew would show up and not be out of his mind I guess, <laughs> the next day or something, depending what happened. But yeah, it was a bad time for me for a couple of years there. Uh, but yeah, I wish that hadn't have gone away. Uh, the people I knew, I think, had moved on. That yeah, was kind of Alex Levy and Art Scott. Those were the two guys that I worked with and, seem to be interested in working with me. 
sure they're long gone. I was going to say, cause I, I was hoping you would say Dolls Butler that you got, cause nowadays with voice acting, it seems everybody does it by themselves, but it seems like you were back in the day when it was still more of an ensemble or people at least were there. Yeah. And that's, that's the part that I think is missing with voice acting nowadays is people getting a chance to react to the actions. Like they can yeah, see the person next to them. Plus, yeah, you know, the first half hour, you're just sitting around talking to everybody. So camaraderie develops and, you know, learn what people can do, what their skills are, what they want to do. And, you know, it's, it's it, I think that part's nice. But, yeah, you're just like in an isolation booth like we're doing right now. <laughs> it's a little harder, you know, but that's kind of even with radio. You know, in L.A., you never phoned in an interview going to the station at four in the morning or six in the morning and do the news or, you know, do the interview from, you know, with the people. But, and, uh, you know, when I was promoting things and you do radio, you'd, you'd always go into the station have a cup of coffee and he's sitting there talking to whoever the interviewer was, the weather person, the news person would be there, you know, was live and and real. But that's when I could get up at four, <laughs> four <laughs> to six in the morning. I, I pass on that. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm too old. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I've had, I had to get up the last few days at like three in the morning and I was just like, Oh, it was, it was, it was dreadful. It was dreadful. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. I had to go to the doctor last week and I had a test, but they had to do it at like, I think it was like seven in the morning. So I had to get up like, I think it was quarter four, you know, to get up and drive there. I was like, Oh my God. And then the next day, I don't know what happened. I, I got up at like seven, which was early for me. I like to sleep usually until about eight thirty. So eh, whatever. It's it's part of life. Now, there's another movie you were in. It was a smaller part, but you also did special effects in it too. And it also has a huge, like a cast of a bunch of known people doing cameos all over. Attack of the sixty foot centerfold. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that for a friend of mine, Fred Olin Ray, the director's buddy of mine, and uh, yeah, that was. In fact, they did that movie. It was actually done. He did it for Roger Corman. So. Um, but yeah, how that came about was, I think he had an actor already hired for the part that I played. And the guy got sick or something happened and he couldn't show. And, uh, he called me up and said, hey, could you do me a favor? Said, well, I'm not really acting anymore. He goes, I need a favor. And I said, well, okay, what, what is it? He said, it's just part. And I thought he's talking about a week from now or a couple of weeks. And I said, when does it shoot? He goes, tonight. <laughs> and I go, tonight? It's, what is it, like two in the afternoon? You know, he's like, yeah, we're going to be shooting from midnight till dawn. And I went, yeah, all right. Just, you know, give me the script or have the script get it over to me and I'll learn it. And, you know, he said, I'll try and shoot you out if I can tonight, but there's some daytime soon, so you're going to have to come back at a later date. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I think the couple of scenes I was in, or I know I remember one that was Russ Camlin was in it. Tommy Kirk uh, from The Shaggy Dog. He was The Shaggy Dog. Yeah, so the movie was kind of populated by, uh, you know, some old classic TV actors, one of which was me. And a guy who I interviewed about a year ago, or actually earlier this year, George Stover, who is a Baltimore legend because like all the films in Baltimore, you know, like like that John Waters did and all these other things, and they flew him out to California 
to do a scene or two out there. So it's it's one of those things. It's like you got a little bit of everything, and it comes kind of brings back Baltimore again. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, John Waters did almost everything in in Baltimore, as did uh, what's his name um, Barry Levinson. Uh, Barry Levinson, yeah, yeah, a lot of his stuff is shot or featured. Uh, Baltimore is the backdrop. Avalon, uh, hairspray. What's the one with? Uh, yeah, hairspray. What's the one with Tom Cruise? Um, the one with Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise that he did. I think it starts off there, but it ends up like in Las Vegas. You're talking about Rain Man? Turns out, yeah, Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his movies, uh, or whatever. Bugsy wasn't Bugsy him, and you know that's where Bugsy Siegel's from Baltimore, I think originally. So, yeah. In fact, Bugsy Siegel looks like my dad. I have a picture of him and a picture of my dad from probably near the same period of time, 1946. My dad in that suit. If you put them side by side, you'd swear that's the same guy. Had the same hairstyle, same kind of general look. You know, I guess in, in those days, my dad actually wore a suit, so weird. That, that <laughs> Said is, to people, I go, that is I weird think enough. my dad might be Bugsy Siegel. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got away. He became, you know, it's, you didn't know about his yeah, secret life. Yeah, he had life. somebody else shot. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he just became like a furniture salesman and uh, married my mom. And the only thing I want to mention, I don't think a lot of people know about with you is you actually have two songs, Hairspray and Pen Pal that are out mm-hmm. there that I know of, you know, and uh, what, what, how did that develop? Because I think that happened when you were doing My Three Sons. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of actors then. Uh, Paul Peterson, you know, had my dad and Shelly Fabre, had Johnny Angel. Johnny Crawford uh, had two or three songs. Cindy's Birthday, I think, was one of them. Whatever. So, yeah, they were trying to get uh, children or teenagers on different shows. Well, I was hardly a teenager. I think I was 11 when I recorded that. But some producers approached my parents about me doing a, a record. And I guess they thought it was a good idea. Next thing I knew, I was in a recording studio unfortunately i wasn't doing johnny angel or my dad i'm doing hairspray uh you know it's a cute song it's a novelty song uh it actually uh play in fact uh, the city is is very small it was like in stockton california it actually became number one of course that tells you about stockton but uh and then yeah about six months later i went with shelly Fabre. And Eddie Hodges, who had had that song High Hopes out uh, with Frank Sinatra, um, Dwayne Eddy, the guitar man, and, uh, well, I mentioned something like that. I think there was one other person there. We did a show in Fresno, and uh, we nearly vanilla did, uh, at least Shelly and I did, because we were like, if that record player goes off, I can't sing, you know? I was afraid to sing live. and she was like, yeah, and I had all those other voices all over me. I was like overdubbed and overdubbed, so she was terrified of doing it. And it went off without a hitch. You know, the music came on, and we pretended to sing it, you know, lip sync it. And Eddie Hodges was a real singer, so he had the background music, and he had a live mic. And uh, Dwayne Eddy, you know, he played his guitar live, so we were, we were the act. And uh, the show was at night, and it was from about 7 to 9 o'clock, and then we were 
was taken to a dinner in our honor in Stockton. And again, I was 11 years old. So after being at this dinner for about 10 minutes, I don't remember even eating dinner. I fell asleep on the booth. <laughs> I just remember waking up in the hotel room. So that was my experience. But it was fun. And Shelly was really nice. I said, I've run into her since then. Had a laugh about that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I had that song was called Hairspray. And then I actually thought the flip side was the better of the two songs, but the one that was getting the airplay was uh, was Hairspray. Uh, but the other side was called Pen Pal. And it was cute and it had a little hook and then it had kind of a you know, surprise ending to it. That the Pen Pal sent me all these pictures of herself looking gorgeous, you know. Turns out to be this hag, <laughs> you know, and I meet her when she gets off the plane. And geez whiz, what a sight to see. And anyway, it was, it was pretty funny. In fact, the guy that was, uh, the, there was a producer that came in that kind of oversaw the production, which was a guy named Gary Paxton. And I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he's the one that had the song um, uh, Monster Mash. Oh, oh. He's the one that produced like, yeah, Bobby Morris Pickett. Yes. So, and then, yeah, and then he had, uh, I forgot what it was, it was something like a, like an eight-man song or something, like the eight-man or whatever. I remember it was kind of another novelty song. Oh, you're talking about Alley Hoop? Uh, yeah, Alley Hoop, that's it. Yep, yep, yep. And I didn't look uh, that up, listeners. Yeah, I actually but, recalled that on my own. You know, I was, once you said ape song, it took, it took me a beat. I was like, Alley Hoop. <laughs> Yeah, that was in fact. I think those girls were the girls that sang background on my song on, on Hairspray. But uh, yeah, it was you know it was fun. It was fun to do it, and you know, even at that age, I kind of had the sense that it was a novelty song. You know, like nothing really that deserved any notice or play. I was actually embarrassed. I used to deny that I did it. I, I just tell people, no, no, no. Somebody used my name, and that's not really me. But it was really me. <laughs> he merely he merely vanilla the concert, but he actually did the record. <laughs> yeah, while they're really spraying hairspray in, into my face from the next mic, mic over. So uh, yeah, my voice went pretty quick after about ten fifteen takes of hairspray breathing that crap and having it go into your throat was. Yeah, not not the best way. They should have just got a can of aerosol and pointed the mic another direction. So I don't know. Hopefully, I don't end up with throat cancer from that or, someday. As I say, or have another mic where they're just doing it and aiming at nobody and, and mix it in. I mean, it's yeah. just I don't know why they had to spray it in your face, but I guess they wanted realism. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think they. You know, I, I'm not sure what why that decision was made. That's. <laughs> I mean, now it's sort of like, gee, I should have probably sued them later. They were like giving me aerosols right down my 11-year-old throat. <laughs> well, nobody knew back then that it was harmful. So it's, uh, you know, we'll give them, I guess we can well, give them benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah. And who who would think recording a song could be, you know, bad for your health, except for the hairspray part. So you win a clue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you have any clue? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any projects that are coming out soon? But I know you talked about you're working on a book earlier. Uh, yeah, I started a book. I got to get back to it. I've just been, you know, a lot of writing 
I kind of approach writing the way I approach screenplay writing is a lot of notes and notes and notes about, you know, potential scenes or in my, in the case of a book, you know, things that I want to talk about topics and then I'll order them and then I'll, you know, write about them and then pick out the ones that I think would be enough to make a book. So that's kind of one idea. I'm a TV pilot uh, that I was working on until COVID came along and, it's kind of languishing still. I haven't gone back to the guys I was using to raise money yet, just because every time I think we're going to be in the clear, it rears its ugly head again, and I don't want to get caught in the situation where we get the money and then can't shoot it. We got to give the money back, and because there's no uh, there's no insurance, you know, and if somebody were to get sick or God forbid die because they came and worked on your show, I. I just don't want to live with that. I'm probably going to be sitting out the rest of the year and hopefully this thing just goes away. You know, the people at the upper level, they can do it because they have all the money in the world, but it does enhance your budget considerably, you know, from the things that they want you to do to make it safe. And it's just more, it's onerous enough to shoot a show. So to have that other additional layer and then the worry that, you can get all the liabilities on you, the financial liabilities that goes wrong. Uh, I'm going to wait a little bit longer, but yeah, I still have the project and I'm just sitting on it really waiting. And I've got a screenplay that I've also been working on. Actually, I'm revamping an older screenplay that I had optioned three times and almost got made a couple of times, but didn't. And it's been sitting there and it's just as viable as when I wrote it a long time ago. So I'm kind of bringing that up the speed and with the sensibilities that I have as a writer today and it's yeah interesting story and it's a I guess a action comedy thriller well that'd be good and I know you said the actor's journey will be coming out in a couple months so um we're recording this in um July so for listeners we're talking you're talking like in the fall yeah, in the fall, probably sometime in October. I'm rebuilding the website right now. The video's all transcoded, so it just has to be put where it's going to be hosted and all that. We'll provide links for the uh, either the whole thing or you can watch it. And then that'll, that's the difference, too. You can either buy it all and watch it all, and we'll still have the DVDs available or they'll all be available on the Internet. Uh, through some providing service that does streaming for us. Or you can watch any one of the eight volumes, which are about an hour and a half long each. Or you can watch any of the segments. So you can you know, cautiously dip your toe and watch a couple segments or jump into a particular volume that would be of interest to you or you know take the entire course. I mean, my recommendation is a lot of the stuff comes out of the thing that just happened before it. And so there is an order of things. So if you can watch it in order, that's the best way to do it. So you, certain things may be confusing if you haven't seen, say, two segments before that. that they pick up on, you know, things that we talked about earlier. But, uh, yeah, to walk away. You certainly have a different confidence level about your knowledge about the industry and where all the, I don't know, landmines are and the bombs and the potholes in the road, uh, which are the things you want to circumvent and keep your career from steering it into a hole that you don't come out of or make a mistake that, uh, you know, after you make it, someone's casting people don't want to see you ever again. So there's a lot of that goes on. It's a pretty picky business. So it helps to know things ahead of time before you go in that room to audition 
and you know what auditions are really about yeah they're about getting the job but they're actually about a lot more than that and that's sometimes the actors don't really understand that yeah and i was gonna say you already mentioned richard donner's in it if i remember right melissa gilbert is also a contributor i mean you have like a, a long list of people that have had uh, yeah, careers a long and, list. Yeah. All over. Well, yeah, people want to check out some clips. But we put some promo clips up uh, a while ago. They're on YouTube. So if you just go to The Actor's Journey on YouTube, there's probably about 40, 50 clips there of the various people who participated in this. You know, Henry Winkler, Michael York, Sherman Hensley, and just a ton of actors. But there's also people you're maybe not going to know by name who are big producers, you know, Emmy Award winning producers and you know, what they're, what they're looking for, which sometimes is completely different than what a casting person is looking for or that an actor thinks he's bringing to it, you know. So you really need this plethora of point of views and, you know, knowing what various people that you're going to meet along the way are, are looking for out of, you know, from you as an actor. And, uh, you know, like most actors get out, you know, I'm just an actor I don't meet or don't want to know any of that well. Good luck with your career. <laughs> yeah, you're you're going to happen. Yeah, because, I mean, sometimes people will show up for interviews, I'm sure. It's like when you go for, like, any job interview, like you've done, and um, people are looking for one particular thing. But it's like when you go to a job interview, you're trying to sell them that you are the person for that job and yeah. and break their mind about what they're looking for, you know, and, and make them think exactly. you're the person. That's that's your primary job, no matter what it said. You know, uh, you could be black and go in the parts for a white guy, and your job is to convince them that you're better than that. You know, than that white guy would have ever done that part. And I know people who were black and changed the producer's mind, and you know, it added more texture to that character and you know more depth. So yeah, you can't let you know who or what they're looking for determine what you're going to do. You know. But then again, you sometimes their their minds are made up, and you know it's not that you've done anything wrong. You just didn't get the part because they already hired another actor, and you're playing their twin, and he has red hair and you got black hair, and you didn't know that. And they don't tell you that, so you know all that stuff kind of goes on too. So yeah, you can't beat yourself up, which a lot of actors tend to do. Well, I'm not going to beat myself up because I'm having a great time talking with you. And I want to thank you for spending, you know, a couple yeah. of hours talking yeah. with me about a lot of these different things that you've done. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. And if I get going again on this next project, we'll have to do it again and I'll bring you up to speed. Oh, that would be great. I would really love it when, you know, when everything's that project you get, it's moving, you know, once we get past um, the pandemic type stagnation for the, like you said, the bigger projects are moving, but the smaller projects are having trouble um, just because of the liability yeah. issues. Yeah, and, and just the way stuff is financed is, is so different. Word ends up, you know, you, you're not looking at the three networks anymore. You're looking at all these, you know, cable networks for potential place some things to go or, you know, who knows? Every time you think you know, it evolves into something else you never expected. You know, who knew it was all going to be on the Internet? Even the studios didn't know that, you know. I mean, when the guy started Netflix, they thought he was crazy. Even they were happy to have somebody license this old material they didn't want anymore. But he ended up making more money than they did. So now they're all emulating him. He may go out of business because nobody's going to have a contract with him anymore for content. 
So, but but thanks again. Never know. I hope you had yeah, a good time. I appreciate it. I did. I did. Yeah, it's always I was a good time. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode with Stanley Livingston. I enjoyed talking to him. I hope you guys did too. If you have any feedback, please email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook site, which is also Diecast Movie Podcast. Hope everybody has a great day and look forward to talking to you guys again soon. And to exit this episode, we're going to listen to a little bit from My Three Sons, the theme song. Thanks. Bye. Bye.